Y'all didn't float away last week. It's nice to have a dry week for a couple of days. Even though they predicted some rain today, we didn't have any. So that's, that's more the norm than to predict rain and have a deluge. So it's good that we're back. Uh, just a reminder, we do have... Uh, we do have several people who have signed up. We have about 16 or 17 so far going on the Egypt trip, and uh, that is a great beginning, but we probably need to double that number uh, just to have a good group. So if you're interested, uh, having questions, let me know. Also, a reminder, uh, Israel tour next year. We have a Greece tour that we're adding to it that will depart on the 20th of April and go to the 26th of April. Those who wish to go to Greece and Israel will go from, uh, will leave Greece and fly to Israel. Those who just want to go on the Greece tour will leave and come home at the end of that part of it. So a lot of different ways that we can work that. So that information will be up there. Men's prayer breakfast is Saturday morning at 7.30, followed by the deacons meeting. We encourage you men who haven't uh, participated to participate and come uh, for the breakfast and discussion, and then uh, also a reminder about Camp Arete, July 14th to 20th, and Vacation Bible School on July uh, 8th through 10th. We also need some help in prep school. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We're coming to the presence of God as a corporate body of believers to study the word, to worship him, and we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared, which means that if necessary, we need to confess sin, to admit, acknowledge our sin to him, and instantly he forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all other unrighteousness so that we are restored to our intimate uh, rapport, our ongoing fellowship with him. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's so wonderful that we can come together to study your word. We still live in a nation that is free. However, there are forces that are rising up against us. There are uh, worldviews that are being taught and have been taught for uh, decades in, in uh, universities and in the academy. And Father, we pray that that, that, will, that influence will be exposed. But we know that as the hearts of this nation are turned away from you, that it it does not bring with it a good wind for our future. It uh, will likely put us in a position as believers where we are face greater opposition and cultural rejection uh, over the coming years, and we need to be prepared to stand firm in our faith. We need to know your word. We need to be able to apply your word, and we need to have our souls fortified uh, with your word. And as we walk with you, Study your word, God the Holy Spirit, strengthens and edifies us. 
Father, we pray tonight as we're in your word that we might be encouraged with what we study, be reminded of how we are to live the spiritual life and how we are to walk with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this evening to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Now, we've been studying the Davidic covenant. We studied the context of the giving of the covenant in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in verses 18 to 29. And then we looked at the intertextual connections to the Abrahamic covenant. And by that, we mean other places and references that go to the Abrahamic covenant, either as those, as like the Abrahamic covenant that was a uh, set a precedence for the Davidic covenant, and also in later passages, references in, in the Psalms, references in the prophets, talking about the future fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and in the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled that as he is the son of David, the establishment of that king kingdom and the establishment of the throne did not occur at the first coming of Jesus because he was rejected. The offer of the kingdom was rejected and therefore postponed to the, to the second coming. And then we went back and we looked at the last part of, of 2 Samuel chapter 7 to look at David's incredible response as he's just, he's just blown away by the grace of God and the goodness of God in giving him the covenant. One last passage that we ought to address is Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a tremendous psalm that we have in the, uh, in the Old Testament. It is 52 verses long, and it is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. But more than that, it is actually a prayer for God to not forget the Davidic covenant, for God to establish that covenant and bring to completion that which he has promised. And so in that sense, it is an example for us of the faith rest drill. How come I'm not getting any projection up here at all? I had turned it on earlier, I thought. Maybe not. Okay, it'll... should... We're not... Hmm? Doesn't have anything to do with the camera. It's plugged into the computer. Is it coming on? Yeah, there it is. Okay. So what we have is the... is Psalm 89 that is a... It is actually a prayer by Ethan the Ezraite. We'll talk about him in just a minute. And the focal point is that he seems to be writing at a time when the Davidic dynasty seems to be in serious trouble. And so he is calling upon God to uh, establish and strengthen the house of David and to and to fulfill the covenant. Now, that brings up a certain problem as we look at this because we don't really know when this took place, when this occurred. So, nevertheless, we can still learn a lot from this, uh, from this passage. So, what is going on here is Ethan is claiming the promise of God, the promise of God to David. So he got, David ha, has been promised certain things by God, 
And what we see in this extended psalm is an example of how to exercise the faith rest drill. So we'll talk about that, define that for people in just a minute. So we, as we look at what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant, we've seen that the covenant itself, as it's laid out in 2 Samuel seven twelve through 16, Psalm 89 and 1 Chronicles seventeen eleven to 14, identifies three basic components, that there will be an eternal house, David wanted to build God a house. God said, no, you don't. I'm going to build you a house. And by that, he meant a dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. Second, there's the promise of an eternal kingdom. These are words you should pay attention to as you read through 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, and Psalm 89. They should be highlighted. That is the, those are the three terms on which everything related to this covenant turns. And then the third is an eternal throne, a literal throne, a throne in Jerusalem, if we're going to interpret the Bible literally. And see, there are these various systems of theology, amillennialism, which means they don't believe in a literal millennium. Millennia comes from the Latin word milli, meaning a thousand. It's based on Revelation chapter 20, talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ in the term that the number 1,000 is used several times in that passage. All other numbers in Revelation appear to be literal, so that should be taken to be literal as well, and especially since it is repeated over and over again. So Revelation 20 talks about a literal 1,000-year reign, a 1,000-year kingdom, a 1,000-year period on the earth which comes after the tribulation period. So we are what is referred to as premillennialists. We believe that Jesus will return premillennial or before the millennium. Amillennialist believes there's no such thing as a literal kingdom, no such thing as a literal 1,000 years. It's a spiritual kingdom. We are in the spiritual kingdom itself. And so that runs at the same time as the church age. The third view is called post-millennialism, and this is the view that gradually in the church age, God the Holy Spirit will bring about uh, improvements as a result of the spread and impact of the gospel until ultimately the kingdom, this period of perfection or utopia on the earth is reached. And then Jesus will return after or post-millennium. Okay, now that's important because in the 19th century, you had Christian ideas about history and about the kingdom perverted as a result of the influence of German rationalism, what became known as German rationalism coming out of the German Enlightenment. And German Enlightenment was every bit as destructive to Western civilization as the, as the French Enlightenment except they they both destroyed the traditional ways of thinking about reality. And they were reactions ultimately to the authority of God as it was made manifest in Christianity and the church uh, at the time. And so the bottom line for that is when you get into various philosophies of uh, society, 
philosophies of politics, philosophies of economics, for example, Marxism and socialism, uh, philosophies such as Hegelian idealism, all of these ideas came together to create just a, a nastiness in history in the 20th century as people sought to bring in this perfect kingdom, this utopic period through human effort instead of walking with the Lord and letting it come about as a result of the Lord's return to rapture and then the literal, uh, then the tribulation and then the literal king, kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. And when you hear these fluid terms today that are bandied about a lot, and, and frankly, if you try to get a clear definition there's no agreed-upon definition. You hear a lot about social justice, but there aren't two people in the country who will agree upon the definition of social justice. They're very fluid, but they come out of this period because the if there is a unifying idea, it is that we can bring in an era of righteousness where there is perfect justice, and that is a perversion of the biblical teaching on a millennial kingdom, and at its root is a denial of the total depravity of man the corruption of man, and the fact that man is inherently evil. That is a rock-solid Judeo-Christian value. And one of the reasons leftists hate Christians and those who believe in the literal Bible is is that we believe that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong, and that man is not perfectible and neither is society. So that sets us up totally against uh, the drift of Western civilization today and the drift of our culture. This isn't going to get better, folks. This is going to get worse and worse because it is observed that we're the ones who are holding everything back, so we become the enemy. Well, that's as part of all of that thinking, we have the Davidic Covenant, which tells us that this era of perfection will not come in until there is a Davidic ruler who himself is perfect, and he is the exemplification of perfect righteousness and perfect justice. And if you look in Psalm 89, in the midst of the first 18 verses, which are really a focus and a praise on the character of God as the one who can bring this about, we have the phrase, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's not the foundation of the presidency of the United States, the Supreme Court, or the House of Windsor, or uh, any of the ruling houses and parliaments in, in Europe or Islam. It is the creator God, the Lord God of the Bible, who defines righteousness. So when you think about these claims, always get your mind focused on on asking the question, well, where do you get your norms and standards for what is just, for what is right? Where where does that derive? And, And think about that as you hear things, as you see things, because they're coming from... The, from the bottom up. They're being developed from individuals' experience of what they think is acceptable. But wh- where do you get this? Why is your view of what's right or wrong better than your next-door neighbor's view of what's right or wrong? And so those become become the issues. And what we see in this 
psalm, which is a great faith rest psalm, is in a time of crisis, a crisis for the Davidic um, monarchy, a crisis for Israel. There is a, this cry from, the, from Ethan, the Ezraite, for God to intervene, for God to act. I want you to hear his question, hear the emotion that we have in the closing prayer. Everything sort of ramps up till you get to the last uh, seven verses. He says in verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? He said, you know, God, you just let this evil go on and on. You see this, this all of these things uh, uh, this chaos developing, you see the culture collapsing, you see all of this evil that's going around. Uh, how long are you going to let this go on? And then he says, remember how short my time is. I'm, he, he, you get the idea here that he, the writer here may be at the end of his life, and he's saying, Lord, I don't have a lot of time left. When are you going to fulfill your, your promise? When are you going to restore order? Are you just going to ignore everything and let it all fall apart? And he says um, in verse 48, what, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? He's thinking, talking about himself, that he's, all, he's about to die. And so then he questions God, verse 49. Now, sometimes people get the idea that they shouldn't question God when they pray. This is a guy who's not only questioning God, he's doing it under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit as he's writing it. See, God's a real person, and we can talk to him like a real person. And if you have questions, if you're upset with God and you try to act like you're not, you're just trying to blow smoke at God, and he, he's basically sitting up there saying, when are you going to get honest and tell me what's really going on? You have to think about your life, and when you have complaints, be like the psalmist and bring these complaints to God. He says, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? And we'll look at that word in a minute, and that word means your loyal love, your faithful love to the covenant with David. He said, you used to be faithful, why aren't you faithful anymore? Why are you letting the whole culture and civilization just just collapse? So you can sense his real frustration here. Where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. In other words, those of us who are serving you, we're the ones who are catching all the flack and all of the rejection and all the ridicule. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. And so the point that he is making, and he keeps repeating that word reproach, is that we're the, the culture is rejecting you. The culture is resentful of you. It's antagonistic to you. And it is leveling that at those of us who follow you. We're bearing the brunt of that rejection, that resentment, and that ridicule. And so he's, he's calling on the Lord, how long are you going to let this happen before you're faithful uh, to your covenant? And then he reaches his conclusion in verse 52, blessed be the Lord forevermore, amen and amen. So that's how this, this closes out. So it tells us that there's something that is extremely, uh, a, a extremely 
critical that's taking place in the culture around him, but we're not exactly sure what that is or when that occurred. So as we get into this psalm, we're going to see the repetition of these words that we found at the end of uh, of 2 Samuel 7, at the end of the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises to David, but my mercy shall not depart from him. That is, he's talking there about his son, uh, David's son, which would be Solomon. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And the word there for mercy, it's translated mercy as well in the New King James the New American Standard's more consistent and translates it almost always loving kindness. It re- refers to the faithful covenant love of God to his people on the basis of this covenant. So we see this word and that God promises that his faithful covenant love will not depart from David's descendants. So that's a promise of God that Ethan is claiming in Psalm 89. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, he goes on to say, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever, and your throne shall be established forever. So you have those three concepts that are in the chart, the house, the kingdom, and the throne, which are promised forever and ever. That's an eternal promise. So this is the foundation, the biblical uh, promise that Ethan is claiming, and he writes 52 Verses, he writes this long, long psalm, all focusing on calling upon God to fulfill this promise. So there's a, a lot of practical value here, both in terms of the fact that he's in a situation not too different from the kind that we're in or that Christians have been in throughout the centuries where the surrounding pagan culture is antagonistic and hostile and perhaps resentful and desiring to destroy the influence of Christianity in the Bible. And it's also an example to us of how to use the faith rest drill in terms of claiming promises. Now, when we, when we look at the psalm itself, this is how it's, it's structured. You have uh, basically three divisions in the psalm. The first one is a focus on God's love and faithfulness. He praises God's love and faithfulness. God's love and faithfulness are the topic in those first five, five or first 18 verses. And we know that because, as we'll see, the word love, which here is chesed, faithful, loyal love, the, that word and the word imuna for faithfulness are each repeated seven times. That tells us something right right away, that this these are both critical words, and that's what the topic is. That's what the focal point is, that when you face problems, that which gives you stability is understanding God's faithful, loyal love to you and to me as members of the church, believers in Jesus Christ, and faithfulness, that God is going to be true to his word and true to his plan, and we can trust him, and he alone is the source of stability for us. And we'll come back as we go through this and see that the concept of God's faithfulness is directly related to the idea of having stability 
in your life that no matter how unstable and uncertain everything is around us, we can have stability and we can have a relaxed mental attitude in the midst of all of this cultural collapse that is going on around us. And that is exactly what we're witnessing is just the erosion on the inside is incredible. We, who could have thought this 30 years ago? that we would collapse internally this much. But it's because we've rejected the foundations provided by Scripture. That's the first 18 verses focusing upon God. The second section goes from 19 to 37, and this focuses on God's promises to David. So after he praises God for who he is, and that's important because just as he... Uh, gives us this example of going to the essence of God and focusing on that all of a sudden when we realize how great and glorious God is and how powerful he is and how great his faithfulness is, then whatever the problems are that we face, they just sort of minimize. I mean, nobody here can come up with a problem that is too great for the omnipotence of God, that is too too great for the grace of God and that hasn't been provided for by God, that hasn't been dealt with in the Word of God, we, we just can't. So when we l- learn that, we just have to change our whole perspective. We have to have an attitude adjustment because God has a plan for us and we need to adjust to His plan and not expect God to adjust to our plan. So that's the focal point here. And again and again in this section, there's going to be a focus on on the character of God. And then the last part is the petition that goes from verse 38 down to the end of the psalm, verse 52. God is petitioned to remain faithful to his promise to David, even though sin and divine discipline have made it appear that the covenant was canceled, that somehow the the house of David is going to fall and that the covenant won't be fulfilled. So those are the three divisions. God's character, his love, and his faithfulness are praised. God's promise is reviewed in light of God's character. And third, that that God is petitioned to fulfill the promise of the Davidic covenant. Those are the three three divisions. Then when we break them down a little bit, what we'll see here, and I had to reduce the font size a little bit, Uh, God's love and faithfulness are praised in those first 18 verses, and there's two basic sections. One through four focuses on God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness, and he praises them. So God's covenant, uh, covenant loyalty and faithfulness are praised, and those terms are used in parallel with each other in the first two verses especially and then he brings in the idea of, of the covenant. What's interesting here, you can catch it in some of the ways it's translated, is the repetition of certain key words that brings, brings out this idea, and it, is, it, it uh, helps us to focus on the issue of stability. If you look at um, verse 2, "'For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever.'" That word for built is something that is constructed that is, is going to be solid. And it is parallel to you shall establish in the second stanza. 
Building up and establishing gives you a sense of permanence, a sense of stability, uh, a sense that you can rest on the rock of the Lord. And then you get into verse 4. And again, you have that same terminology, establish and build up. So those reinforce the image of God's faithfulness and his stability that you get in both the words for, for his faithful, loyal love and the word, uh, word for faithfulness. Then in the second part of this opening section, the focus is on God's unique and awesome character, especially his righteousness, his faithfulness, his justice, and his power. And we and truth, you can add truth to that. That's that, those are important. God is the source of righteousness. We hear a lot today of social justice, but the issue for us as Christians is biblical justice, not social justice. And there's a vast difference. Where do you derive your values for social justice? Whose society? Who defines society? Who created society? Where do you find the very first society? The very first, if you define society as a group of persons gathering together, the first society is the Trinity. You have three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bound together eternally. And so in that society, what is at the very focus of it? It is righteousness and justice. And so we start with those concepts from an eternal absolute that is unshakable, that it's, that's immutable, these are the terms that that resonate throughout this entire uh, this entire psalm is the God who is faithful, loyal, he's the rock, he's the one who is stable in this uh, second part in uh, verses five through eighteen we see we have four divisions there. The first is that the Lord will be praised. And that's in Psalm 89, verse 5, sort of a summary statement of that which will follow. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. And that's not talking about the stars in the sky. That's talking about the inhabitants of the heavens. It's a figure of speech. Uh, Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. So the assembly of the saints refers to what? The assembly of the holy ones. That's the angels. The angels are one, the ones who inhabit the heavens. So you see you have the parallelism between uh, the heavens will praise you is parallel to uh, the assembly of the saints. So that helps, you de- see, helps us define that. It is the, the inhabitants of the heavens, the angels, who will praise uh, God's wonders. And so the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also. So wonders is then developed into faithfulness. It's a wonder. It is something that should be that should inspire awe in us as we see what God has done. Because a God who can bring something out of nothing certainly can can solve any problem that we face, and can certainly bring, restore stability to a nation, and restore stability to your life and my life. So, again, that is a summary that introduces the rest of the section. Then in verses 6 through 8, the Lord will be praised for his unique and awesome attributes. He's holy. That means he's one of a kind. He's distinct. He's unique. And he is set apart from everything in in creation. In verse 6, he says, For who in the heavens 
can be compared to the Lord. Can anyone be like God? No, no one can be compared to the Lord. And I think there's a little thrust there that's between the lines. See, not Satan. He can't be compared to the Lord. No one can be compared to the Lord. Who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty? That's another term for the angels. Those who inhabit the heavens, who, can, who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And so it's a focus on his uniqueness. Well, what makes him unique? Well, as you go through this section, we're going to see that it's his righteousness, his justice, his truth. These are the things that are the foundation of his throne. And so when we look at this concept of foundation, I think that we're going to stop and take a little bit of time just to reflect on what is the foundation of rule. What is the foundation of rule? Scripture says that a nation, uh, a nation will perish when the foundations crumble. What are the foundations that establish a rule? What are the foundations that establish a nation? So we need to, to look at that, and it's truth, it's righteousness, it's justice, but those terms do not exist independent of the character and the person of God. So we have to go to Scripture to define everything, just like we go to Scripture, we go to the cross to define love. Love isn't what you experience uh, when you have a baby and you look at that baby and your heart is filled with love for your baby. That's great and that's wonderful, but that's not biblical love. Biblical love is when you give that son to go to the cross. That defines biblical love for those who don't deserve it. That's how we go to the Scripture to define these these concepts of righteousness, justice, truth, love. All of them are exemplified in God. In the uh, in that third section, the emphasis is on His omnipotence and His omni. I really butchered that spelling, didn't I? The omnipotence and His sovereign rule over creation. And then fourth, the Lord blesses those who walk with Him and glory in His righteousness. And strength. We glory in God's righteous rule. We as believers need to take a stand for righteousness. There is a place for that, but it is a biblical righteousness, a biblical justice, not a social justice that's derived from the experience-based experience ideologies of, of Marxism. So we start, we look at Psalm 89, and we look at the very first line. Now, these superscripts are part of the text in the Hebrew text. This is verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. This is not verse 1 in the English Bible. So when you look at your English Bible and you see the, the small print there, it says a contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. It's in small print, like this is an editor's comment. This is not an editor's comment. This is part of the original text. It's giving us a hint, not much of one, about its original use. It's a maskil. A maskil was a type of a of a psalm, a hymn that was sung, and the author is Ethan the Ezraite. Now, when I looked at this superficially, based on just some things that I had read as well, you look at this and you go, Ezraite, what comes to your mind? Ethan the Ezraite, what comes to your mind? Ever heard of Ezra in the Old Testament, priest? 
He's a post-exilic priest, came back, uh, reestablishing the worship of God. He's about the uh, third return of Jews from Babylon. Well, that's not the Ezra he's talking about. See, I had made, I had looked at that, and I just assumed that's who he's talking about. So I was thinking, okay, this is a contemplation. The king, the time of this chaos and collapse is either during the, uh, it's either during the period of the exile or it's following the exile, and everything's still in a state of chaos, and there's no Davidic king on the throne, and so everything just seems to have fallen apart. And that would make sense in terms of what the author says. But that's wrong. You'll also find other people, you may have some notes to this effect in your Bible, that this is during the period about four or five years after the division of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom after the death of Solomon when uh, Jeroboam in the north led a tax revolt of the ten nations in the north against Judah and Benjamin in the south. And then you had the split of the kingdom. And then four years later, Shishak, who's a pharaoh in Egypt, comes up and invades, and everything is in disarray and chaos. And so some people suggest that it's Shishak. Well, we'll see about that. Other people think that it occurred either after Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion or second invasion or even after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. But if we do a search in the text on Ethan to Ezra, there's a number of Ethans that are mentioned, but they're almost all indicated by their, uh, by their father's name. And as we have here, Ethan the Ezraite, so he's from that clan or something we don't really know, but he's mentioned in 1 Kings 4.31. But we have to have the context. This is a summary statement about Solomon. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. In other words, he's the wisest guy who ever lived. For he was wiser than all men. He's wiser. Who's the first guy he's wiser than? He's wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. Well, if he's wiser than Ethan the Ezraite and somebody is writing 1 Kings either at the same time as Solomon or just a little bit later, then it's possible that if he's writing a little bit later that it could be Shishak, but it's more likely based on the fact that 1 Corinthians 15, 19 mentions Ethan in conjunction with Heman and Asaph that he was a contemporary of David's and might have overlapped a little bit into Solomon's life, but that he is uh, much earlier. He is much earlier than, than Shishak. He's earlier than the tax revolt between the north and the south. He's much, much earlier than, than the uh, 200 years, 300 years earlier than the Babylonian invasion and any of that. So it can't really be them, but but that also has other problems. I'm not going to drill down in, into all of the details, but it just leaves a certain level of uncertainty. But one of the things that seems to be certain is that Ethan the Ezraite is a contemporary of David and Solomon somewhere around 1,000 B.C., 990, 980 B.C., somewhere in that period, is when he was alive. And so this would indicate that he's not looking at one of these major catastrophes, but he's looking at some other catastrophe 
that is occurring during the time of David. Now, if we're right, as I've suggested in previous classes, that the Davidic covenant isn't given chronologically early like it's stated in the text, but that this was something that came late later, and for, for the various reasons I suggested, because it says that it was after David had defeated all of his enemies. Well, next, the next chapter we get into in chapter 8, David's still fighting all of, all of his enemies. So it seems like the Davidic covenant comes later. But one of the last things that happens in David's life, as we'll see, is that David orders a census to be taken of the people. He wants to see how many people he has and how great he is. That's the thrust of that. It's a very arrogant action. And in the parallel passage in Chronicles, we're told that that the source of this temptation to do this was Satan. So he's clearly doing something that is extremely arrogant and wrong and in disobedience to God. And as a result of that, there is this uh, crisis of a plague among the people. For, for three days. And it's possible that it's in the context of that, a real low point in the history of David in his life uh, towards the end that this was penned. But but we don't know. We can't say for sure. We can't peg it to any particular time or any particular event, except it does seem to be, uh, be very, very early. So the superscript here. And what's interesting here is the people who don't pay a lot of attention to it, okay? Uh, For example, Alan Ross found out today that Dr. Ross has said that he'll be here for the Chafer Conference next year, and so he'll be coming to talk about worship, and that will be outstanding. He wrote, he taught Psalms for had taught Psalms for about 10 years at Dallas Seminary when he wrote the commentary on Psalms in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And in that he says about this psalm, this royal psalm is a prayer that God would honor the Davidic covenant. The psalm is attributed to Ethan, a Levite, according to 1 Chronicles 15, 17 to 18, and a wise person, according to 1 Kings 4.31. But the exact occasion of its writing is unknown. Then he comments various military defeats, such as the invasion of Judah by Shishak of Egypt and the Babylonian exile, have been suggested. Now, he wrote that. That Bible knowledge commentary came out about 82 or 83. In his most recent work, that was probably first volume or two on the Psalms were published about 10 years ago, he says, since it is a lament over the defeat of the king, the psalm probably had to have been written when the king was a real person, so there was still a literal king ruling over Judah. But that would include any time from David to the captivity. Then he says, the problem is made more complicated in that the writer seems to have used earlier material, perhaps both the hymn, the first 18 verses, and the oracle, that is 19 through 37, making him a compiler more than a composer. Did he mention Ethan? No. See, he didn't even mention him in his most recent commentary. Then I consulted a couple of other commentaries, a Moody Bible commentary on uh, which uh, the Old Testament was edited by Michael Rydelnik, and he makes a, uh, the same argument on that Ethan the Ezraite 
appears to be a, have been a poet or a wise man in the court of Solomon. So he sees the timing there, not later with Shishak or uh, or at the at the exile. And there were a couple of other commentators. Tom Constable, who's a professor in Bible exposition at Dallas Seminary, when I was there, has a has his commentary on the whole Bible out as well. You can download it off the internet. He makes the same argument. Now what's valuable, they're they're making a text-based argument. They're not just operating off of a a sort of abstract idea. This must be at a time of a defeat. Let's find a time of defeat and plug it in there. They're looking at who is Ezra, uh, Ethan the Ezraite, and let's find his time and and look at it that way. So that's more text-based than it is uh, based on some sort of, of uh, external rationale. So it's a, it's a better approach and a better, better methodology. So we get into this first division where the focus is on the love of God and the faithfulness of God and God's love and faithfulness are praised And in the first four verses, God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness are praised. Now, what we see here is this emphasis on these two words. His mercy is one way it's translated, and loving kindness, that's the favorite way for the New American Standard to translate it, God's covenant loyalty. All of these ideas are bound up in this word chesed. And so that's the first key word at the top of this slide, chesed. Incidentally, that is the root word that has to do with covenant loyalty now. That's the root word for the noun chasid or chasidim. That's a plural for Hasidic Jews. The root there is is chesed, and what they're claiming is that they are loyal to God. And so, but that's the idea. It means loving kindness. It's translated mercy, kindness, faithfulness. Uh, This is the emphasis in chesed. Notice the last, what's that last word? Faithfulness. It's sometimes translated because God is faithful to his covenant. So there's a synonymous overlap with the second word we see in this word, and that is the word emuna. Emuna. Now, that is usually translated faithfulness, but it's really close to a derivative form uh, of that word, a cognate, emet, E-M-E-T. And if you look at what, what are the consonants there? Now, you have this first consonant here, is this is the aleph that's usually translated as a as like an apostrophe? It's just an extremely soft, almost unpronounced guttural. And, and so the first vowel is this funny-looking five dots here. That's the e, and then you have an m and a u and an m. So if we just replace the first vowel with an a, and then the second consonant, second letter is an m. And the third, so the second vowel is an e, and the third, or the the let me see, that'd be the second full consonant would be an n, a m e n. A couple of light bulbs went amen, which means it's certain, it's true. 
So when we say amen, that's what it comes from, is amen, which is the Hebrew word, and it has this idea of certainty. It has this idea of stability. And so this this is the idea in this second word. In fact, it's used and translated doorposts in 2 Kings 18.16. Now, that's a significant passage for doing a word study because the doorposts, it, it really is, and it... it, it in a more accurate translation, it's translated as a pillar of support. It's the foundation stone under the pillars of the temple. What does the foundation stone provide? It provides support and stability for that which rests on it. That is how that word is used. So the core idea in this word group is the idea of stability this idea of something that is steadfast, that is rock solid, that is unshakable, that is immovable. That's why it comes to refer to uh, faithfulness in, in one sense. One group of words tends to focus on faithfulness, and another cognate set focuses on truth, because truth is that which gives us stability. Without truth, everything is totally relative and everything is uncertain and you can't depend on anything. So both of these concepts, truth and faithfulness, come out of the same word group. That was confusing for the King James translators because they hadn't really drilled down enough in their sophistication with Hebrew at that time. So a lot of times they translated emuna as truth. Sometimes it has more of that sense, and you derive that from the context. So that's why in some passages, and I hit a couple of them, it's not translated faithfulness, it's translated truth, but it should be translated faithfulness or stability. So... These are the two key words. So let's just look at how they're used in this, in this psalm. Because what, what we're seeing here is that part of his use of the faith rest drill is to focus on these characteristics of God. And when we focus on God, when we have problems and we're turning to trust God, what we have to do is focus our, our, the, our, our minds on these attributes of God and their their certainty. So he uses these two words and they're parallel. Remember, I've talked about how in poetry, in Hebrew poetry, you're rhyming ideas rather than words. And so it's called parallelism. And when you have the first line states one thing and the second line then restates it in a slightly different way using synonyms. And it echoes the first line, usually expands on it just a little bit. And sometimes the second line is in opposition. That's called antithetical parallelism. And then you also have another form of parallelism where a main idea is stated in the first line and the second line expands on it, opens it up. So the first stanza in verse 1 says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. The second line says, with my mouth... You sing with your mouth. See, there's the parallelism. With my mouth will I make known, that's related to in your singing, you're making something known, your faithfulness. See, faithfulness is parallel to 
to chesed, to your faithful, loyal love, to all generations. That's parallel to forever. So it expands on that, uh, that you're going to make known God's faithfulness. That zeroes in much, it's more precise than just chesed. Verse 2 then says the same thing. It says, for I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very very heaven. So the speaker here in both verses is going to be Ethan. He is singing about the mercies of Yahweh, and then he says, For I have said mercy, again, it's the same word, it's chesed, it's your faithful, loyal love, shall be built up forever, and then the faithfulness, your faithfulness shall establish in the very heavens. Now, we saw that the, the root idea in Amuna, we're going to come back to this, the root idea in Amuna is that which is steadfast. It's, look at the other verbs here, it's built up and it is established. See, the language here resonates with that which doesn't move that which has been built, established, it's rock solid, and it's unshakable. And so it drives us to thinking about God in that way. But it's brought out by these, by these words. In verse 14, you have the use of, of chesed again, and now it's connected with truth. But the word that's used here for truth is, is emet. And so it's, it, some, some translations will translate it mercy and faithfulness. So we see that it's very close connection, the ideas, and there's a lot of debate that goes on about when you translate it one way or the other. Psalm 89.24 says, But my faithfulness, Imuna, and my chesed, my faithful, loyal love, shall be with him. That's God speaking in terms of the descendant of David mentioned in the Davidic covenant. And then in Psalm eighty nine twenty eight, my mercy, my chesed, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm. See, again, stand firm. This idea, it's stated over and over again, that when things are in a state of chaos, that which is stable and steadfast is God. Psalm eighty nine thirty three. nevertheless, my, my what? My chesed. Now it's translated, the last two times it's translated in this psalm in the King James and New King James as loving kindness. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore to David in your truth? Notice again here, loving kindnesses is going to be related to truth in that passage. Here in Psalm 89.33, you have both loving kindness and faithfulness and parallelism. So uh, all through this hymn, there's this, there's this drumbeat, there's this theme, musical theme that's running throughout the background on faithfulness and loyal love, faithfulness, loyal love, faithfulness, loyal love, and it's also tied in some ways to the idea of truth. So then we come to the second key word, Amuna, which like Chesed is used seven times. It's used in Psalm 89.5. It's used in 89.1 and 2, but we've already covered that. So it's used in 89.5 by itself in the heavens. That is, those who inhabit the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness. That's part of his wonders. Also in the assembly of the saints. Uh, Psalm 89.8, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. So see, faithfulness is, is parallel here to mighty. 
what makes God powerful is his stability. It, it, it focuses us on another dimension of omnipotence because that which is truly uh, all-powerful is stable and solid and dependable. Then we get into Psalm eighty-nine, forty-nine, and uh, the statement here, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore to David in your truth? And there it should probably be translated, it's emuna, and it should not be translated truth, but faithfulness. So we see that parallel that, that, that is being brought out here. So all of that gives us an idea of the theme that we're going to see here and how the writer is reminding us again and again of God's faith, faithful, loyal love. He's loyal to us no matter what we do. It reminds me of the hymn that's quoted in Second Timothy 2, that we are faithless, yet you remain faithful. No matter what we do, God is always faithful. So we get into looking at the faith rest drill, and there's three components. Step one is to claim a promise, and that means that we have to know a promise. It has to be hidden in your heart. You have to memorize Scripture. When Jesus is refuting, rebuking Satan, when Satan is tempting him in the wilderness, he's not saying, well, there's five points to this doctrine. Okay, he's quoting Scripture accurately. So we have to hide the Word of God in our heart. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So it's not just doctrine. It is the Word of God that we have to know. That's the starting point. Sometimes we remember the whole promise. Sometimes we just remember, uh, we just remember a phrase. But we latch onto that, and we mix our faith with that. And sometimes we're mixing our faith with a principle because we remember God is faithful. But that's that scripture. So it's a principle. God is always faithful to his word. So we latch onto that or we latch onto a rationale. And really, we'll see that in this passage. There's a rationale that is built in establishing the confidence of Ethan because he keeps going over God's essence. If you're faithful, if you're righteous, if you're just, then, then you will act in a certain way. So he's, he's using that, that as a structure for expressing his faith to God. So we start off with claiming a promise, and then step two is we think about it. This is what meditation is. It is going over that promise again and again and again in our head and and squeezing every bit of truth out of it that we can. We think through these rationales that are embedded in the promise. But notice we have to know what the promises are. And that's what we find in here is by going back to look at the words, the terms that are used in the Davidic Covenant. Words like establish and house and faithful, uh, that's, those are the very words that, the, that Ethan is using in this, in this psalm to claim the promise of the Davidic covenant. He's using God's words and God's language back to him as he's claiming, uh, claiming that promise. And that's why he, he's able to think, think it through and restate it in terms of these rationales. And then uh, third, he's able to appropriate the conclusion that this means you're going to act, act in history. Now, that's not stated as overtly as it is in some psalms, 
but it is in the very last verse where he stops and just said, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. And as I just said, that amen and amen is a form of emuna. So by saying that at the end, he is reiterating the idea, I believe in the steadfastness and the certainty of God. So that expresses that. So this brings us here just to the faith rest drill, and then we'll stop here. It's a good stopping point. Next time we'll come back and see how these three steps are exemplified in this psalm in relation to what was specifically promised in the Davidic covenant itself. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that we see in your word of how we are to claim promises, how we are to pray, how we are to take these things before your throne of grace and present a case to you and how we should pray and how we and, and expressing how we trust in you and why we're trusting in you. And if we're building a biblical case, what we're trusting you for in light of what you have specifically promised. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to think through what we've learned tonight, think it through as we read through the psalm a few times between now and next week in preparation that we can come to a better understanding of how this this whole methodology of this psalm is at the core of our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.